evidence and answers. Nabil Qureshi grew up in a Muslim home and was trained as a Muslim apologist. Very few Christians were able to engage Nabil, but one day he met a Christian who was able to present a defense of Christ to Nabil. Listen as he presents his fascinating journey from Allah to Jesus. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. He's a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Without delay, here is Pat as he concludes his interview with Nabil Qureshi. Well, the first thing I would say is, really, I thought that the Quran was a book for all people. If it's something that must only be read in Arabic, then it's only for the Arabic-speaking world. And the fact of the matter is, if you learn Arabic and you study it, as I have, I studied it for six semesters at the university level, and of course I grew up reciting the Quran. If you learn Arabic, study it, they'll retreat again, and they'll say, no, you need to be a native speaker. And so there'll always be an out. And a good thing to point out to them is simply, look, if you're here to find the truth, then I'm telling you, it's not a matter of whether I speak Arabic or not. It says what it says. And we should be careful before we retreat. And because, quite frankly, if your friend is a Muslim, <laughs> chances are they don't speak Arabic either. And the vast majority of Muslims don't understand and speak Arabic. Even those that do, even those that come from Arabic-speaking lands, they don't speak Quranic Arabic. Quranic Arabic is classical Arabic. closest thing to classical Arabic today is Fusha, which is modern standard Arabic which is what the scholars speak and what you'll hear in news reports, that's not what the average Muslim speaks or the average Arab speaker. They speak colloquial forms of Arabic. So they have to go to school to learn this. So long story short, if your friend is saying you have to be a, a speaker of classical Arabic, that disqualifies everyone today from understanding the Quran. You know, that's a great point that you just made here. You know, and this is key because Muslims view the Quran as the perfect book which came down from heaven. So it's something that they really don't want to criticize or attack, but they view it as the perfect book. And if you point out some difficulties in there, it really is a threat to that particular doctrine that they're taught. And that's a large part of the reason why I wrote my book. Because, for one, you don't want to have to do that. You don't want to have to tell your friend, hey, the book you trust as the Word of God has all these mistakes in it. That's going to take a toll in your relationship. It would be so much better if you read a book that lays it out in an easy-to-understand way and then handed it to them and said, what do you think of this? And that way you're not being combative. They're going to get the same information, and they're going to think about it first honestly for themselves. And that's what I've attempted to do in my book. And even in the book itself, I'm not presenting the argument in a combative way. I'm presenting the arguments in the way that I found out about them which was as a Muslim. And so I'm reading these arguments as a Muslim in my book. And I'm saying, well, I found this out, and my response was this. And then I found an argument against that. And at the end of the day, I was shocked, but this argument was strong. And so I'm not saying, hey, Muslim, you've got to learn this about your book. Not at all. I'm saying as someone who was a Muslim, I was shocked to find out this information. My heart rebelled against it, but no matter how much my heart rebelled, my mind knew it was true. Yeah, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book there. Now, you also saw a difference between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible. What are some of those differences? Oh, they're tremendous. They're tremendous. The God of Islam commands a lot by fiat. He tells you to do what he wants you to do, and there really doesn't have to be any rhyme or reason. He can be fairly capricious. Whereas the God of the Bible is absolute. There are principles that flow forth from his nature that are immutable. He is 
infinitely just. He is infinitely merciful. He can't just choose to ignore some sins randomly. Since he's infinitely just, every sin has to be paid for. And he can't just pick favorites and forgive them, pick favorite people and just forgive them their sins. No, he, if he's going to offer mercy to anyone, he offers mercy to everyone because his mercy is infinite. And so, as a God who has these infinite characteristics, he is much more like the philosophical nature or concept of God that has been borne out in philosophical discourse over the past few centuries, where his characteristics are absolute. The Islamic God, as I said, is not that. We see that again in his lovingness. In the Bible, God loves everyone unconditionally as his child. In the Quran, not so. You have to do certain things in order to be loved by God. And if you do other things, you will lose the love of God. So, yes, those are two big things. Another big thing is that in Islam, God would never come into this world, or at least that's how they suppose it, Muslims do. If God were to step into this world, he'd be jeopardizing his majesty and his glory. Why on earth would he ever do that? Well, Christians believe that God would do that because his love is greater. His love for his people is greater than his desire to hold on to his majesty. As Philippians chapter 2 tells us, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself. And so our God is humble. And that's another thing. In the Christian God, you have an embodiment of all things that are good. Everything that is good is good because God is that thing. Why is it good to be loving? Because God is love. Why is it good to be generous? Because God is generous. Why is it good to be compassionate? Because God is compassionate. Well, how about when you get to things like humility and self-sacrifice? Why is it good to be humble? Christian answer, because God is the most humble being in the universe. Muslim answer, I don't know. It's just something that God has deemed by fiat to be a good thing. How about self-sacrifice? We recognize that in our hero stories as one of the most positive attributes anyone can have, being willing to sacrifice himself for the ones he loves. Why is that good? Christian answer, because God is the most self-sacrificial being in the universe. Muslim answer, once again, God commands you to be self-sacrificial. Therefore, it's, it's a good thing. So, all these reasons make the Muslim God and the Christian God different in substantial ways, and I would posit that the Christian God is a lot more philosophically coherent in these matters, and frankly, more attractive in his love and humility. You know, that's significant what you say, because we're taught in the popular press, and many of my Muslim friends believe that Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all worship the same God. Isn't that correct? Yes, because Muslims believe that uh, they're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that they're worshiping the God of Jesus, and Moses, and Noah, and Adam, and they'll take all these names from the Bible and say that they're found in the Quran too. I was just thinking about this the other day a little bit more because so many people ask me this question, is it the same God? And my answer to that, and I'm going to try to share this answer for the first time with you guys, my answer to that is, what does that even mean to be the same God? Now, let's say we're talking about my father. Let's say I have a very real father, which I do, and someone says, I have a story about your father. Your father did this. And he shares a story that's false. It's apocryphal. Is that a different father, or is that an incorrect story about my father? I would venture to say it's the latter. It's an incorrect story about my father. So if we just had one or two differences between the God of Islam and the God of Christianity, that would be what I would say. 
But when you start looking at the God of Islam versus the God of Christianity, you have so many of such differences to where if the same man said, let me tell you about your father, and he gave just hours and hours of incorrect stories about him, I would say you're talking about a different man. And that might be the case between Islam and Christianity. It's a very different picture, and it might just be different enough to where it's a different God, but at the very least, it's an incorrect perception of the one true God. Now, eventually, when you're sharing with Muslims, it comes that, you know, they get to the topic of the Trinity, which they reject. Is a defense of the Trinity an avenue you would go? And if you do, you know, how would you explain the Trinity to a Muslim? Absolutely. A good question. I would say that if you are a Trinitarian Christian, you should be able to articulate the Trinity. Frankly, if you say you believe in the Trinity, but you're not able to say what it is, you don't actually believe it. You just want to believe it. You have to be able to say what it is. So here's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is the belief that God is one in being and three in person. One in being and three in person. So by saying one in three, we're often skipping what we're talking about. And that can be a contradiction, which Muslims charge. It's not a contradiction because it's one being in three persons. Well, the next question is, what's the difference between a being and a person? A being is that essence or quality or characteristic that makes something what it is. A person is that which makes you who you are. And those are two different things. So, for example, when we're talking about me, I am a human being. That's what I am. But who am I? I'm Nabil Qureshi. That's who I am. And so I have one being with one person. God is one being. What he is is a divine being, God, Yahweh. Who he is is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is not a contradiction. So when we can explain what it is, we can then unpack it. But I would also encourage our Muslim friends to understand, look, we were never told in the Bible to have to understand the Trinity before we were Christian. That was never something we're charged with. What we're charged with is to, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We have to follow him. And in following him, I think over time we'll begin to see the Trinity and understand it. But it's not a prerequisite. That's a great point you bring up. You know, another issue you struggled with was the Prophet Muhammad. Now tell us, what are Muslims taught about Muhammad and how do they view the Prophet of Islam? Muslims see Muhammad as, generally speaking, the perfect man, the most perfect man who ever lived, al-Insan al-Qamil, as, as was said in Arabic, the best you could possibly be. He was the chief of the prophets, the seal of the prophets. And what do I mean by all this? Well, it means he was the most generous man. They believe that. They believe he was the most loving man, the most compassionate man, and the most merciful man. They do believe that. They believe that he was the best statesman and diplomat, that he's the best spokesperson, that he's the best general. It doesn't matter what title you give him, he was the best of all of them. That's how people see Muhammad. And the reason why is because these are the stories they've been told from childhood about him. Now, when you want to share the truth about Muhammad, once again, I would do it very, very carefully. I would do it after years of having established a relationship with your Muslim friends. But then you would say, how do you know? How do you know this is what Muhammad is like? Because if, and you can be honest, look, if Muhammad really is like that, I want to know. Maybe he's a man worth following. But if he's not like that, you should want to know. So let's find out, how do we really know who Muhammad is? And you start going through the sources. You start going through the historical sources on Muhammad's life. You will find, no matter what source you turn to, innumerable problems 
with that traditional account of Muhammad in light of what's recorded in the history. You see things like assassinations. You see things like even women being assassinated. You see things like satanic verses being revealed to Muhammad. Just one thing after another after another, and they start adding up. My friend David started pointing out things, and I easily rationalized about a dozen of them. I would say about the next hundred, I rationalized difficultly, but I did still rationalize them. After about a hundred of these problems, I had to say, wait a minute, who is this man that I'm following? Nabil, what's a good source for people to get a good overview of Muhammad's life? I like Ibn Ishaq's work, which is one of the early biographies of Muhammad, but if someone wants to study the life of Muhammad in a maybe a good book, where would you encourage them to go? Now, if you are a Christian who just happens to want to study Muhammad's life, there are some places I would suggest you turn. If you want to go to a primary source, I think Ibn Ishaq is a good place to start. If you have Muslim friends, though, especially if they're Sunni Muslim friends, I would suggest you read alongside them Sahih al-Bukhari, because that's the book that they are probably going to say is the most reliable. Ibn Ishaq, I think, is probably better for apologetic and historical purposes. But for for your Muslim friend's sake, I would say consider reading Sahih al-Bukhari. If you want to read some modern books in order to understand what's going on, you may want to consider reading something somewhat controversial to get an understanding of the, the nature of the historical sources. Robert Spencer's book, Did Muhammad Really Exist?, might be a good place to start, although he is seen by many to be as too polemical. Another place, if you're slightly more academically inclined, would be Dan Gibson's book, Quranic Geography. This will give you an awareness and understanding of just how poor the early Islamic evidence is. If you want to read a book that's a really fun read, but kind of dense to go through, I would recommend Tom Holland's book, In the Shadow of the Sword. Bestseller in the UK actually outsells the Quran in the UK as a book on Islam, and fascinating read, fun to read, will show you once again the nature of the historical sources. But like I said, if you're trying to reach a Muslim friend, it might be best to just read something like Sahih al-Bukhari. How did your perception of Muhammad begin to change? Well, like I said, at first, I simply dismissed offhand the possibility that anything like this could even possibly be true. Then I started reading it, and though externally I was still dismissing it, and in fact, Internally, I was having all kinds of difficulty resolving these. So the cognitive dissonance within me was growing. I was putting on this facade, showing people, no, 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 I have no problem with this. But internally, I was like, what is going on? And the way that that manifests itself is that I started living a more Muslim life. I started leading courses on Islam. I started teaching the youth in my area. I would start leading the Friday prayers whenever I could because I was trying to basically make penance for the doubt I was feeling inside. And so even though people were saying, oh my gosh, Nabil is becoming even more Muslim, let's stop sharing the gospel with him, my friend David kept going because he felt compelled to keep going, and it was a good thing because that just meant I was getting closer and closer to snapping. And then when I got to a final point of saying there's just too much here, then I kind of went into a, a mode of despair. And instead of really practicing anything, I just sought God, and I asked God to guide me. Now, Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, a man, but they also revere him as a prophet. But did you see a difference between Jesus and Muhammad? Well, absolutely. I mean, you start reading 
through the historical accounts once again, and Muhammad is very much obsessed with war and women and sex, uh, unfortunately. Like I said, the average Muslim doesn't know this because they've been taught things in the mosque and by their parents. That's not how they see Muhammad. But if you start reading the historical sources, you find that. It might not necessarily be the case early on in Muhammad's ministry, but as he gains power, as he continues further on, according to the broad contour of his life, as told in Ibn Ishaq and by Sahih Bukhari, etc., you see him getting more and more centered around sensual and carnal matters. Jesus isn't like that at all. Jesus is amazing, compassionate, loving, kind, very much interested in matters of God and God alone, none of these carnal issues. Not married, Muhammad had at least nine wives, if not as many as 23. You know, Jesus was not in charge of an army, didn't collect war booty. And granted, Muslims can often rationalize this stuff and say, look, Muhammad was in charge of cities. He was in charge of an expanding empire. He had to have money. He had to marry people's daughters in order to bridge differences between tribes. Sure, but once again, once these things start compounding, it's too much to rationalize. So, And finally, when you look at Jesus' life, he doesn't claim to be just a prophet, as Muhammad did. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Al-Halaj was killed uh, in the ninth century, one of the first Sufi Muslims, because he claimed to be the truth. That was recognized as one of God's 99 names in Islam, the truth. And yet, Jesus claims this name for himself. Muslims have to conclude that Jesus, according to John's Gospel at least, claims to be God. Muhammad never did that. And so there's a very big difference between Jesus and Muhammad. Yes, now, there are teachings in Christianity that can be offensive to Muslims. You know, what are some of those teachings that Christians should be aware of? Well, the Trinity is definitely one of those. The idea that anyone who comes after Christ and proclaims to be him or proclaims to bring a new teaching, that that is a false prophet, that is often offensive to Muslims as well. So those are some offensive teachings. Also, ironically, the teachings about the prophets in the Old Testament, for example, that Noah got drunk, or that Moses killed someone, or that David, you know, had an affair, or that Solomon had hundreds of wives. These teachings Muslims often find offensive, because, you know, those are prophets claimed by Islam too, but Islam doesn't teach that, the, that they did that. And so they're saying that you are tarnishing the name of, of God's chosen. Those are all things that Muslims can find offensive. Of course, you know, the drinking of alcohol, the eating of pork, etc., but theologically speaking, those are the main things. Well, what finally drove you to the point of decision between Islam and Christianity, and what was holding you back? Well, a lot was holding me back. I mean, I had a Muslim family, Muslim friends. My whole life was based on Islam. I was the eldest son in my family. If I were to accept Christianity, that would not only affect me, but that would squander all the honor that my family had ever gained. And as an honor-shame-based culture that we have, that's huge. I'm not just accepting Christ and throwing my family under the bus. So... A lot of that's holding me back, of course, also the belief that Muslims have that if you believe Jesus is God, you're going to go to hell. Chapter 5, uh, verse 73 of the Quran says that. So, all this stuff, am I accidentally going to worship a false god? You know, that was holding me back. And of course, some Muslims, like those in the Middle East, I was just reading Ex-Muslim Forum, which is a Twitter account, mostly atheist and agnostic former Muslims, a lot of them have to deal with the worry or the concern that they're going to be killed for leaving Islam. The law of apostasy is a very solidly established law in Orthodox Islam. 
So these are things that hold people back, of course. What put me over the over the edge, though, was when I started earnestly seeking God. Of course, I saw the evidence for Christianity was far stronger than the evidence for Islam, but that didn't convert me. That just brought me to a point where I was going to earnestly seek God. And that's what I did. That's where the title of my book comes from, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And when I sought Allah to hear me, to answer my prayers, and to, to show me how Islam was true, Jesus is the one who answered. And he showed me that Christianity was true. He appeared to me in a vision. Well, he himself didn't appear to me in a vision, but he showed me a vision in three dreams, which led me to accept the gospel. And that's a fairly common occurrence happening throughout the uh, Muslim world, dreams and visions which lead people to Christ. Well, we pray that they would have an open heart to listen to your story and the message of the gospel of Christ. Thanks, as, brother. As we're coming to an end here, what advice would you give to those of us that want to reach our Muslim friends and family members for Christ? My advice for you would to realize, be to realize that you're not called to convert anyone. You're called to be a witness for Christ, not a prosecutor. You're called to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. So tell them about Jesus, and don't take it as a personal responsibility to convert them, because that's, number one, going to be extremely frustrating. For two, it's an affront to God, because that's his job. And for three, uh, it's going to cause you to consider after a long time whether or not you should continue in this relationship because it's been unfruitful. The fact of the matter is the average Muslim takes seven years of hearing the gospel before they accept Christ. So over that time, just befriend your friends, your Muslim friends. Love them because Christ told you to love them, not because you have to convert them and that's why you're loving them. No, love them because they're inherently worthy of love because they're made in the image of God and God loves them. Therefore, you should love them. Even if your Muslim friend looks like they're always going to stay Muslim, no matter how long you spend on them, that's fine. Keep loving them. Keep being a witness. And ask God through prayer to change their hearts. Keep praying for them. Fast for them. So represent Christ with love. Remember that your Muslim friends, generally speaking, they see their faith as a system, Islam. They don't see it as a relationship with their maker. So show them what it means to be in relationship, in communion with God, and to follow Him, and not really care about the system per se, but about Christ Himself. And that's my advice. Stay persistent, stay in prayer, stay in witness, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, while loving your Muslim neighbor as yourself. Now, our show is not only heard in the United States here, but throughout Asia. So, if a Muslim were listening right now, what would you want to say to them? If a Muslim's listening, I would say, number one, I hope there's nothing I said in this show that offended you. It wasn't my intent to offend you. I found a lot of the things that I said today offensive when I myself was a Muslim, but I ultimately found out that they were true. And so seek the truth. Don't be afraid to learn more about Muhammad, to learn more about Jesus. Read Jesus' words in the Injil. Muhammad says, the Quran says that the Injil is the word of God. So read the gospel. Read what Jesus says about himself, and then find out. Read more about the historical Muhammad. Read Sahih al-Bukhari and Ibn Ishaq, and see if you really want to follow this man. And no matter what, remember that you should put God first, not the system of Islam. And I, as a Christian, should not put the system of Christianity first. I should put God first, and seek him, and love him, and if you do that, you will find a relationship with your Creator that is unlike any other relationship you could possibly have. And that is where God has created you to be. Those are great words. Nabil, if people want to find out more information, 
about you and articles you've written and your works, where can they go? Please go to our ministry website. I'm a part of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So go to www.rzim.org. You can also go to nabilkureshi.com. That will take you to my page on the RZIM website. Finally, you can try seekingallahfindingjesus.com. That will take you to our page on, on the website about my book, and that will provide links for everything else. And if you want more resources, just type my name in on Google, Nabil Qureshi, and you'll find much. Great. You've been listening to our interview with Nabil Qureshi, and I encourage you, get his wonderful new book out there, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. It's a great story and gives you also insightful, wonderful information on Islam to equip you to share lovingly the gospel of Jesus Christ with your Muslim friends and family members. Well, Nabil... Thanks for being on the show with us this week. Thank you so much, brother. It was an honor. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. This concludes Pat's interview with Christian apologist and former Muslim, Nabil Qureshi. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team with us, please start with prayer. And then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at www.hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers. Evidence and Answers.